0: This is the Heartland Daily Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Heartland's Institute's Daily Podcast. I'm Sterling Burnett, Director of the Arthur B. Robinson Center on Climate and Environmental Policy and Managing Editor of Environment and Climate News. I'm pleased today to have as a guest the person who has appeared more than almost any other person on our show, Darren Bax, except a big change has come in his career since we last spoke. Every time Darren and I have spoken in the past, he was with the Heritage Foundation, primarily covering Agricultural and Clean Water Act policies. He made a move. A longtime friend and colleague, Myron Ebel, retired from full-time work at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, where for many years he served as director of CEI's Center for Energy and Environment and a senior fellow. Darren took over that role and has big shoes to fill. Here to discuss today what the shift means, what CEI is working on now, and summing up COP28, because it's just over and it was big, I'm pleased to have Darren Baxter on again as a guest. Darren, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you, Sterling. It's great to be here.
0: Darren, before we jump into your new role at CEI and all that entails, for our listeners, because we get new listeners all the time, so some may not be familiar with you, please give us a little bit about your background and previous work.
1: Yeah, I've worked on uh, energy and environmental issues for a long time. I I think that my real start in kind of free market economic kind of policy issues was with the John Locke Foundation in North Carolina. And I was the director of legal and regulatory studies there, and I, I focused a lot on energy and environmental issues and regulatory reform, as well as property rights. Then I kind of moved back up to D.C. and worked in a, I worked in the U.S. Chamber of Commerce for a little while, but then went to Heritage Foundation. I was at the Heritage Foundation for 10 years. And I, yeah, as you said, I worked on agriculture issues, but I also worked on a lot of environmental issues like Clean Air Act issues, and as you mentioned, a lot of Clean Water Act issues. And now here I am at CEI. I'm really excited to be here.
0: So as, you know, we've already mentioned, uh, I came to you as an Agriculture and Clean Water Act specialist when I was doing a story for Environment and Climate News, and one of my uh, writers were. Uh, we'd come to you as the go-to guy, but now you're at CEI. How has your new role or position changed the topics you'll be covering, and will you still be putting – uh, you know, highlighting government's poor farm policies on occasion?
1: Well, on the, on the latter point, I, I, I hope that we'll do some of that uh, on the farm subsidy issues. So I, a lot of the issues I will be working on certainly involve climate issues, and there's a lot of overlap between some of the agriculture issues and climate issues. So certainly where there's overlap, that will be part of a lot of things that we'll be writing about. But my, my focus now is just on energy and, and environment, and that's a very, obviously a very broad portfolio yep. of issues. I, we have a, a great team here at CEI and our energy and environmental team, and we're going to cover a lot of different issues. They, CEI has covered a lot of issues in the past, and we'll be covering, I think, even more issues in the future. Um, I think you'll see more in the way of, what I think, kind of true environmental issues like Endangered Species Act issues, Clean Water Act, Issues and, but I think for the folks that know CEI for a lot of the great climate work, that's can, can definitely going to continue. We're going to do more on energy issues, especially in, in the electricity space. Um, so a lot of exciting things. There, unfortunately, there's a lot of bad things happening out there, and <laughs> CEI is definitely going to hopefully. Well, we're going to working with Heartland and many other organizations help to push back against a lot of the bad things that's going on and hopefully advance a positive agenda to try to ensure that we have freedom and uh, really uh, property rights protected in this country.
0: You know, to some extent, Darren, I think we're in the same boat. Um, My mother used to work for the Social Security system. And when I was in a different think tank, of course, we worked a lot on uh, getting private retirement accounts and ending Social Security as we know it. I went to lunch with her once and I said, Mom, how does it feel knowing that I'm trying to put you out of work? And she laughed and laughed, and she said, Son, do your worst. <laughs> so, you know, as as long as there's big government, I suspect that you and I um, will have plenty of work to do, uh, even in Republican administrations with Republican congresses, as I've come to find.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's true.
0: So – I think you'd admit you have pretty big shoes to fill there at CEI, uh, taking over from Myron. He, he was there for a long time and he did many great things. What issues? I mean, you've you mentioned energy, but what issues in particular? what, what task, what um, projects are you particularly taking on at present? Uh, how are you me- working to uh, pressure government to make wiser decisions on those policies?
1: Yeah, there's a lot lot there. So first of all, absolutely. Myron is um, somebody I really admire and respect, he's done an incredible job. Uh, So yes, I definitely have big shoes to fill. So I'm going to definitely try to do that. Uh, We have a lot going on here in this country when it comes to energy and environmental issues, and there's some issues right before us now that we're focusing on. I mean, there's definitely kind of the bigger picture issues of long-term ensuring that we have pushback against the radical kind of climate agenda and also ensuring sound science and energy abundance. But in terms of the immediate issues, and that's certainly part of it, but getting more specific, you know, really more specific, there are a few issues definitely on my radar screen and on the radar screen of our team. That includes carbon tariffs, which is being pushed by a handful of Republican legislators, this is literally would impose a a tariff on goods coming into the country based on the carbon intensity of those particular goods. This is actually a tax on Americans because Americans would want to pay for it. And then the the imposition of the, the tariff and the structure that would be created in terms of figuring out Like the carbon intensity of domestic goods would invariably lead to uh, the imposition of a domestic carbon tax. In fact, this is, is, and also to me, international trade obligations, we would likely need to be, like to probably be required to impose a domestic carbon tax. So you're getting hit with two taxes, really. You're getting the tax, which is the tariff, and then you're getting the tax, the domestic carbon tax. And it's like we've already fought this battle about carbon taxes before, and now we're dealing with it again, and it's because of a handful of Republicans that are getting some uh, pushing it. Plus, there's all kinds of other issues. It's, a, it's punishing energy use. It's uh, it's, it's definitely going to drive up prices for Americans. It's going to make it possible for other countries to have some type of leverage onto the regulatory decisions that are made domestically. And that's exactly what the, the tariff is doing, is trying to impose the, some type of moral preference on uh, on other countries as to how they regulate in their countries or tax in their countries. So it's a it's a bad precedent and something that we are very concerned about and something that we're fighting. So that's that's just one issue. I I should stop there because I can keep going on and on about carbon tariffs.
0: Well, what, what what's another issue?
1: Oh yeah, I mean there's there's look look I, as you're. Listeners know there's the Inflation Reduction Act and ah, yes. the the agreement that, that's done to the, so
0: much to, to tame inflation.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's an accurate name, sure. The Inflation Reduction Act. You know, it's good <laughs> to see the transparency the Biden administration has. They they yeah. can't even come up with an actual name that is accurate for a yeah, bill. It re- um, reflects
0: what it does. Yeah.
1: So. Yeah, so the the green subsidies in that bill would likely cost over a trillion dollars. It'll probably cost more than that, actually. Probably cost well more than I think. There's been an estimate of 1.2 trillion, but when all is said and done, we're talking about a lot more money. It's it, but it's worse than just the amount of money being spent. Is the the nature of the the government trying to dictate what kind of cars you drive, trying to move away. from a centralized plan to move away from reliable electricity generation to unreliable electricity generation. All of this stuff is central planning. It is, you know, the the idea of literally trying to make it difficult for people to buy gas-powered vehicles and either drive EVs or just drive nothing. If I said that 10 years ago, I think a lot of people would think that I'm just being a scaremonger. Well, here we are. We're in a place now where the federal government – is trying to get people out of gas powered vehicles that's how little there is in terms of respect for freedom and the costs imposed on Americans by these kind of extreme climate agenda so
0: not just, we, we gas, powered not yeah. just gas powered vehicles it's not just gas powered vehicles gas stoves they want they, they oh, want no, to come well, into your well, home yeah, well, and that's... tell you no gas stoves no gas furnaces no gas water heaters uh, my, 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 uh, I haven't seen it, but probably no gas, uh, um, uh, uh, pool heaters. Um, you know, basically they're trying to dictate every little thing you do in your household.
1: Yeah. You know, uh, if you make the case that you believe that the end of the world is, you know, here with the climate change, uh, it, they think it gives them the, excuse to dictate every single thing that the government should dictate how we should live our our lives. And it's kind of just this negative, it's kind of this assumption that we have to sacrifice everything that development, wealth, innovation, we have to sacrifice all that in order to combat their kind of existential threat as they perceive it or ostensibly they perceive it as climate change and in reality even if you assume that there was some type of serious threat of climate change the last thing you'd want would be uh, to build this turn this country into an energy poor nation you want to turn it into a an energy rich country and a country that's wealthy that has the ability to develop innovative solutions to any type of challenge that is posed by climate change because they, they, they don't recognize that the most important resource of all is human ingenuity. Mm. And they just think that we're just going to sit around and be static. We're, we're just going to not come up with new ideas as to adjust real challenges. So we just have to go back to, well, I don't want to be too extreme, but in essence they want us to t- take us way back to decades back and, and reduce the standard of the living of Americans. And, you know,
0: Well, emissions-wise, they want to take us back. Emissions-wise, they want to take us back to the 1820s. Emissions-wise, that's where they want us, and And we know the technology's there. I think, to be fair, you're a much kinder man than me, Darren. Um, (laughs) You you see this as they're really concerned. I see this as elite. I said
1: ostensibly. I said ostensibly. So. Ostensibly,
0: I see. Well, I, I don't even think ostensibly. Some people. I think they, look. Maybe a few of there's them. There's elites. There's elites that have a view of how the world should be. They should fly private jets. You should not travel at all. Um, they should eat uh, prime rib and caviar, and you should eat grasshoppers. And you certainly shouldn't have children. And that's their view of the world. And they're willing to enforce it. And, you know, the problem is not just that there is no climate emergency, you know, that the evidence doesn't suggest that there is, but that they're not charged with telling us how to live our lives because they think there's a big threat. They're charged with doing what we elect them to do. This is democracy, not a, a, a climate dictatorship.
1: Well, yeah, I, mean, I don't remember seeing the Constitution anything about a climate Dictatorship. Exactly, that's something they may have missed, and maybe they didn't realize that. I know I a lot of great points there. There was a well, we're going to talk about COP twenty eight probably, but there was yes. a session at COP twenty eight about um, dealing with emissions from yachting. Um, so, kind of gives you an, an idea of the the elitist nature of these individuals. Mm-hmm. So, yes, the you know, so getting back to what we're doing on the IRAs, do to push back against these subsidies, we do not want the the inflation reduction act to kind of be the new normal it's not like we're just going to assume we're going to electrify everything and that we're going to be going in this direction that evs are just basically not going anywhere it's going to be the new normal mm-hmm. so one of the things that cei has is we have an article series that we're doing called defending the personal energy choices of americans and one of those a lot of the articles are about appliances that you talked about. And a lot of them are about EVs and they'll, we'll focus on other issues as well, just because this is an attack on freedom. I, I I fear that sometimes people think this is theoretical, you know, that it's something that may happen or it's kind of goofy or, no, this is happening now and this is very real and it's going to hurt American families and all of us. It's,
0: um, you know, our entire industrial policy is being designed by people who know nothing about engineering or physics or anything else. They know about how to get elected. They're smarmy. They know, they know how to sell, uh, sell themselves uh, to the voters. But, you know, for instance, as you say, electric vehicles, electric appliances, wind and solar. So they're they're putting more and more demand on the power grid at the same time as they're making less and less reliable power grid, yeah. because we're relying more and more on intermittent energy. That is a recipe for collapse. Any engineer could tell you that, but they don't consult engineers; they consult their polling, uh, you know, their their, their 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 political polls.
1: Yeah, you know, it's I. Uh... I'm not sure what they're <laughs> consulting, Yeah, um, yeah huh. you know, because, you know, e- so, so you make it a, an important point and, you know, even independent of the, the additional demands being imposed on the grid, the, the, just the effort to make more difficult hmm. to generate electricity by itself is imposing a, a threat to the grid. I mean, something bad is probably going to happen, quite honestly, when it comes to electricity generation. Um, and that will only be as that. So as you move away in Texas,
0: it already has, right? Yeah. Winter, winter power failures kills two winter power failure in Texas kills 200 people.
1: Yeah. I fear that something even worse, you know, could potentially happen. And I don't know if that's what it's going to take to wake people up, but I mean, I think people are, you know, awake, but we, you know, I I hope nothing like that has to happen because look, you, you have to have reliable, you have to have dispatchable electricity generation. You have to have base load generation and you can't just imagine that you're just going to have intermittent sources do everything. It doesn't work that way. Just literally it can't work that way. And then you put more pressure on the grid, then it just makes things worse. So Darren,
0: um, cop 28, you mentioned it just wrapped up. What were you surprised about and not surprised about coming out of the conference? Uh, the final agreement has non-binding language to transition from fossil fuels. What are your thoughts on that idea and any dangers it poses and whether or not you think it has any real
1: teeth? Ah, uh, wow. Um, Big question, but you can handle yeah. it. Well, thanks. Thanks for the faith. <laughs> uh, well, I guess one thing I'm not surprised about is there's, you know, just the extreme nature of the, the discussion. Uh, The idea, I mean, it's a lot of the language was all about phasing out fossil fuels, and then at the end, they wound up with a transition from, boy, that's nice of them. Um, So I mean, you know, over 80% of our energy in this world comes from, we looked at fossil fuels for that. What are we going to do, we're just going to go away from that all of a sudden, and what world do they want people to be living in? I mean, I guess to the 1820s. I guess maybe those are the good, good old days. I don't know, um, but that's where, that's where they're gonna be sending the developing, the developed countries, and the developing countries will never see the time of ever being developed. Um, so I, I just the arrogance, um, this idea that, I don't know, that we, as the developed countries, well, we've we've made it. So develop, developing countries, we don't care if you make it. It's just a complete, dis- I, I, I'm not surprised at these types of extreme policies because we see it all the time. There's a complete disregard for costs, the trade-offs, what it means, how it's going to hurt the poor, um, the impact of energy poverty, what that means, um, how it's going to hurt mobility, just the, this belief that they should tell everybody how to live their life and then as they're hypocritical and don't live their life in that manner. Um, so that's kind of what you saw. Um, I guess in some ways I'm surprised it might have, I mean, I, I guess it could have been worse. Uh, but I think for the most part, it kind of played out the way I would have thought. Uh, but you know, that, that's just the, the phasing out the fossils is just one aspect of it. There's also the loss and damage fund. that So yeah, there's also, there's also always at these conferences, money involved. Money. More money and more money after that yeah. um so in the loss and damage fund is in in many ways just a a reparations type of fund to kind of pay developed countries to pay for the the audacity to have used uh reliable energy um and to pay it to developing countries as if developing countries didn't benefit themselves from the use of reliable energy Throughout the years, and the fact that we were able to, through trade and through many other means, the dissemination of technology, etc., to benefit uh, mankind. As,
0: as if there's a single identifiable thing they can point to and say, "Oh, that's climate change, and it's your cause." Yeah. Um, as opposed to weather events, which happened before we were using fossil fuels, and will continue to happen after. Uh, we eventually duly you know, truly do transition away. But what, you know, so what are your thoughts? Were there any real teeth in the agreement, though? Because it looked to me like it's the same as, as uh, to some extent, Paris. It's it's voluntary. We agree to do this, but there's no deadlines. And there's no hard timelines. There's no enforcement. It's like um, uh, Thomas Hobbes wrote: uh, "Covenant without the sword is but words."
1: You're right. But I think the concern, though, is the direction that it's going in. And, you know, I I think that's what concerns me. I don't think there's any real teeth in what's come out of it. But I do think that the momentum still should be a bit of a concern. Um, It kind of plays both ways. In other words, there is certainly an argument to be made that a lot of it is kind of like hollow and has no real teeth, as you say, which is true. But you, you, you'll see in these kind of international types of conferences and agreements, this, this stuff starts to filter in to our domestic policy. And it starts to become like ingrained into kind of the, the thinking. And we've seen that through kind of Smart growth policies and you know land use restrictions and population control stuff. Well, maybe it's not a lot of that. A lot of this stuff, in many ways, is kind of influenced from people that believe that humans are a problem on this yeah. planet. And I think that a lot of the thing that we see at these type of conferences still kind of assumes the same thing. It doesn't place space in humans; it kind of sees humans as a problem. And so, yeah, there's, there's, it could have been worse. There's not a lot of real teeth, but it's really important for the good guys. Uh, that's you and me and many that's others. Like, that's um, us, yeah. <laughs> to fight back. We, we got to, you know, it's really important for us to, to fight back and to stop kind of conceding ground on some of these issues. And uh, that's definitely what we're going to be doing at CI is we're going to be proactive and we're going to be on offense.
0: Yeah. We had, you know, we had Heartland as well. You know, you know that we, uh, I will say this, you're right about one thing that's scary. So every, every time they have a new agreement, even if it's um, lacks enforcement, governments didn't come back and say, oh, we've signed on to this. So we've got to do something here. And no one ever says, "Well, yeah, but they can't force you to." No, no, no. We agreed to it, so let's start doing something. And that's what, and you know, and we get the Inflation Reduction Act, or we get uh, some version of the Green New Deal, which was just many of the Green New Deal things were incorporated in the Inflation Reduction Act. We won't call it the Green New Deal. We're, it's all about inflation now. It just happens to be the Green New Deal. So mm. you're right. Uh, no teeth, but still they they use it. They use it as a. a a lever, a fulcrum to uh, create new climate policies. Well, Darren, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. I want to thank you for coming on the show on behalf of myself and our listeners.
1: that's great to be here. And thank you so much for the invitation.
0: Yeah, well, we'll have you back on again soon. Listeners, thanks for checking in on us today. Please check Heartland's website as we follow the work of Darren Bax and the other great analysts at the Competitive Enterprise Institute going forward in the future. We always count them as allies. Please also continue to follow us as we track the progress of energy and environmental laws and regulations that affect you also. If you're not already receiving these podcasts, telling your favorite advice, go to iTunes and subscribe. And when you have the time, please rate our podcast on iTunes so you can help us expand the reach of free market ideas. You might also check out our weekly climate change roundtable live stream every Friday, though not this Friday because it's the holidays, on your favorite social media streaming service where Anthony Watts, Linnea Lucan and myself and almost weekly guest, discuss the climate topic of the week, complete with taking questions from viewers.